picking it back up in uh, Revelation this morning. If you remember, the title of our series in Revelation is called The Time is Near. The Time is Near. And the title of our message as we uh, finish out Revelation 1, uh, picking it up in verse 4 through the end of chapter uh, end of chapter 3. Yeah, we're doing all 20 chapters today. End of verse 20 uh, is the beginning and the end. The beginning and the end. If we remember, this isn't just a book called Revelation. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. That this book is Jesus Christ revealing things about himself, about heaven, about judgment, about the church, and about the future to anyone who would listen, to anyone who would have ears to hear. And we know that Jesus was the ultimate prophet, and this is his ultimate prophecy, I believe. We also talked about how a lot of people tend to be afraid of this book, uh, believers and unbelievers alike. They're afraid because of the mystery inside it. They're afraid if they understand the mystery of the judgment that it speaks of. Um, I think, it, you know, it's, it's sort of, we're afraid because we know that this is proof that we're going to be held accountable one day, that there's an end to life, and that the end is not just oblivion. You don't just go back to dirt, but... There's either reward or judgment for the way you've lived your life. Um, I think some are afraid for all these reasons and the above. I know that before I got saved, when uh, I was reading this, it got me fearful. But it was a different kind of fear. Uh, not a fear like you see when there's no hope, like a tragedy, but really a fear that, man, this is going to happen, and I am afraid of it. But as I read it, I realize that I've got a way out of all this. That there is a way out of this judgment. And if we remember, if we do read, like we did read last week, that there is a blessing to this book. It's the only book that sort of has this introduction to it. It says if we read it, and we hear it, and we keep it, right? That, uh, that we will be blessed. If we read, if we just read it, even if we don't understand it, and you just read it. I think if you read it and you come to it with an ear to, to want to understand it and try to understand it, and you actually do begin to understand it, it's even greater. And from there, if you begin to keep those things that you understand, hold them close to your heart, and live like it's going to happen because it is going to happen, and in fact, it's already coming to happen. Because revelation is not not understandable. People think it's under, not understandable, but it is understandable. And if we are paying attention and we're open to what Revelation is actually saying, and furthermore, if we pray that the Holy Spirit would give us insight and wisdom, and maybe we even pick up a commentary or begin to listen to other uh, teachers teach the book, we're going to see, oh, it's really not that complicated. There are some complicated things. Don't get me wrong. I'm a little nervous about getting through parts and actually teaching them. It's one thing to read and to understand them, but to teach it is another thing. So don't get me wrong. But it's not out of our reach. It's not here to kind of give us a tease and say, you're incapable. Uh, but with the Spirit, we are capable. In John, John 16, 7 through 15, the same John who wrote Revelation, uh, he says, uh, what Jesus said, who said, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But Jesus says, If I depart, I will send him to you. The Holy Spirit's a him. It's a person. And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. 
of sin because they do not believe in me, of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more, and of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. However, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak of his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you things to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of what is mine and declare it to you, all things that the Father has in mind. Therefore, I said that he will take of mine and declare it to you. We see here two things, well, two things I want to point out at least, that the Holy Spirit will declare the things of God to us. As we get into the scripture, the Holy Spirit, part of his role, part of who he is, is declaring the things of God to us that we might understand them. And that's why teaching the Bible can only be done through a gift of the Spirit. If you understand anything that I teach that's of a spiritual nature, know that it's of God and not of me. And if it's confusing, well, blame the messenger, me. And the second thing I want to point out, God bless you, Timmy, is that Jesus wanted to tell the disciples a lot of things, but they weren't ready yet. He goes, guys, I have so much I want to tell you, but you can't handle it yet. You're going to need the Holy Spirit to handle it. And I believe Revelation is one of those things, one of those great things that Jesus wished and wanted to share, but it wasn't time yet. There are many things I want to share with my kids that I can't wait to teach them how to do. Yesterday, we were moving all these boxes and furniture, and Jacob, in such a lovingly little way, goes, Daddy, can I help you? He always wants to help me, and it always breaks my heart in a way because, oh, you can't help me carry this. It would hurt you, but I told him, Jacob, trust me, as soon as you're big enough, I'm going to have you help me because I need the help. And I want him to help me. I want to do those things with him. So I try and find things for him to do. But sometimes I just can't let him help me. I think that's the same with Jesus. Like, you guys just aren't ready for this. It's too much for you. It would crush you. But now that we have the Holy Spirit, now that revelation has been given, he obviously wants us to read it, to hear it, and to keep it. And Lord, we pray that, God, as we do read it today, that we would understand it. We would hear it. You'd give us understanding Holy Spirit. And you'd uh, show us how to keep it and how to live a life, uh, God, in these last days, ready for your return at any moment, but also living in a practical way, uh, a holy way, a righteous way that we would spread the gospel uh, in light of the truth of judgment and of uh, reward that we'll see in this book. We love you, God, and we pray you would come soon, but please bring people to know you, uh, especially those who are listening. In Jesus' name, amen. Remember, Revelation speaks of the judgment of the end. That Revelation speaks of the judgments on the inhabitants of the earth. That all those who live on the earth will be judged. Just like the flood came and judged those who were on the earth. In fact, the animals suffered too because of it. Because of sin. And yet God decided he would start over on earth through Noah's family. The same thing, but in a bigger picture, is happening. That God is going to wipe out the inhabitants of the earth. He's going to start over with the remnants who remain, the church. Uh, they, well, at least the, the tribulation believers, it's not quite, it's not it's a little different. Um, but then at the end of it, he's going to wipe out the entire earth and have to start over fresh without sin and new heavens and new earth, as we'll see. But that this judgment that's coming is for those who don't trust in God. It's for sin. If you want to identify with sin, if uh, you want to identify with Satan and the fallen angels, then all, then all for you, all the better for you. That judgment is for you. But if you don't want judgment, 
All you have to do is turn from your wickedness and turn towards a God who loves you and he'll reward you and you haven't even done anything to deserve a reward because he's good. But know that this condemnation it was specific for the enemy, for the fallen angels, and for sin. And that's what, the, that's what hell is because God desires that no one goes to hell. We read the scriptures and that's clear. And we'll even see a little bit today of what John and Jesus say that show us that. Because hell was created for Satan and the fallen angels. And hell is that eternal separation of God, that eternal torment and punishment. It's not a party. Satan's not in charge of it. As we'll see here in a little bit. And that if you go to hell, some people like to tell each other that, it's because you chose to go to hell by following anything other than Jesus. And I promise you that God is giving you a way out. If you're listening to this right now, and your destiny is hell, you can choose to go to heaven right now. God is giving you a way out of that. Let's go on. Let's read the first eight verses here together. And say, I'm sorry, the first four verses four through eight uh, together in Revelation chapter one. And it says, or John writes, he says, John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler over the kings of the earth to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and has made us kings and priests to his God and father to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with clouds and every eye will see him even they who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him even so amen i am the alpha and the omega the beginning and the end says the lord who is and who was and who is to come the almighty and we'll stop there and man i'm excited i can't believe i get to teach this whether anyone listens or not it's a different story but i'm excited that i get to go through this and teach it because i love this book Again, I'm not the foremost expert. If I get something wrong, please correct me. But I love this book. I don't have to understand it to love it. I loved it even when I couldn't understand it at all. That's because of the Lord. The Lord was using this to reach me, to save me out of my sin. But we see that John the Apostle, the one, as John would write, the one whom Jesus loved, the one who raced Peter to the tomb, who rested on Jesus as the Last Supper, is the author of this book. He's an old man now. He's very old. We'll get to a little bit more of that later. But this, this letter, as we'll see here, uh, Jesus tells him to write to, it's written to the seven churches in Asia. When you and I think Asia, we think maybe China, maybe Vietnam, maybe uh, South Korea. But this Asia is uh, Asia of the time, what you might remember from history class, Asia Minor. It's... Uh, modern-day Turkey, that whole sort of uh, landmass that juts out uh, from sort of the Middle East towards Europe. Uh, it's across the Aegean Sea from Greece, again, if you remember your uh, geography classes. Uh, but if you remember, Paul did a lot of missionary journeys in this region. That Maybe he didn't necessarily go to each one of these cities, but this was the region that Paul went to when he went to the Jews and the Gentiles there. And again, we're going to look more closely at these seven churches in the next two chapters uh, when we actually see the words of Jesus for them. But in this book of judgment, 
Revelation, you think end times, the apocalypse, that's all people think about, because that is the majority of the book. I don't think that that's the majority of the message of the book, but that's the majority of the events of the book uh, that are spoken about. The first message to the church, and in fact to you and I, and to anyone who would read it, is what? It says grace and peace. It's not John saying grace and peace, like, look, I've got this message of judgment. Let me try and candy coat a little bit. It says grace and peace from God. That God is writing this letter to you and I, this revelation of Jesus Christ, that we might have grace and peace, not that we would have judgment. Sort of like, again, I think I've used the analogy, when we go and bomb a city, a lot of times we bomb them with leaflets first, saying, we're going to bomb you tomorrow, get out. Because we're more concerned about not hurting innocent people than killing the people who do need the killing, who do need the judgment. And that's what God is doing. Consider this, the leaflets that he's spread out on the earth, that we might read them and go, there's judgment coming. I don't want to be judged. How do I get out of this judgment? Because God always gives this message of opportunity for peace when it comes in judgment. When Jesus opened up the scriptures in the temple, he talked about being a messenger of peace. He didn't go on to talk about the rest, about judgment. That's what this is right here. Because God's judgment is never a threat. We view it as God coming, well, why do I have to bow down to God if he's just going to put me in hell if I don't? That's not God's judgment. God's judgment on your sin is righteous. It's because your sin, that, it's an equation. You either choose light or dark. If you choose dark, there can't be any light in it. It's not the light's fault. It's darkness. Because this judgment is never a threat. It's a consequence. It's a right result for evil equations. 2 plus 2 is 4. 4 minus 2 is 2. It's just the way it works. And Jesus introduces himself. He says, or God, uh, John talks about the one who is, who was, and is to come. That this isn't a God who just was, just a Buddha who lived a couple hundred years ago, just uh, uh a guy in the Middle East who got this demonic vision and started a religion and suited to himself. But this message is from the God who is timeless, who's uncreated, unending, has no beginning, has no end, that he always is. It's the same God that introduced himself to Moses in the burning bush. Who should I say sent me, Lord? I am that I am. That God eternally exists. And in fact, apparently from what the, uh, the commentary says about this, it says that the actual Greek words here is, is kind of an awkward statement. It's kind of an awkward uh, uh, phrase. Apparently, it seems that John was trying to best communicate the Hebrew in the Greek to say that this is the Hebrew God, the God who always is, Yahweh. We see that we have these seven spirits here before the throne of God. Uh, it says, uh, in fact, that this is a title or name for the Holy Spirit, that this uppercase S, seven spirits. It's a little confusing when you read it, because seven spirits, well, I thought there was one spirit of God. Well, who are the seven spirits? Well, seven is a number of completion. It's a number of perfection. Um, because when you think about it, uh, a spirit isn't complete without a body. A spirit needs a body to, to function and to get through. Um, but the Holy Spirit is complete in and of himself. He is part of the Trinity of God, right? Yeah, in a sense, he dwells within Jesus, but in a sense, he's his own person. He doesn't need a body to be perfect. He already is perfect. Our spirits need a body 
to dwell. Evil spirits, well, it says they go, but if you read the Bible, it talks about them going in the earth looking for people they would dwell and inhabit and possess. They have all these horror movies this time of year because people are obsessed with the spiritual. They love to think about demonic possession, but heaven forbid you have Holy Spirit possession because evil spirits would seek to embody you and I for their own benefit. But the Holy Spirit, who is perfect on his own, seeks to indwell us for our benefit. He doesn't force us into convulsions and laughter and barking like a dog and jumping off the ceiling and turning your head around and vomiting. He dwells within you. And when something goes wrong, he's grieved and you can sense it. And he might speak to us and lead us to do something, but we still have a choice. Again, because he chooses to indwell us, because he loves us. In fact, uh, Isaiah 11.2 sort of hints to these seven characteristics of the Holy Spirit. It says the Spirit of the Lord, so this is the Spirit of God, this isn't some other spirit, the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and of understanding and of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord. So the Spirit of the Lord, but with wisdom, understanding, counsel, might, knowledge, and fear. That all these characteristics embody the Holy Spirit. And in fact, we're seeing a picture here of the Trinity. We see the Father, the Spirit, and the Son. A picture that uh, is clear in the wording of Genesis, that it's a triune God. It's a, a plural God, a plural unity God. But here we get a, a, a much deeper picture. Again, a revelation of things that were seen earlier in Scripture. Now we're getting a crystal clear image of and he says, Jesus, the faithful witness. And remember that Jesus even said, guys, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. That Jesus is a perfect picture of the invisible God, of the God that we can't approach. The God who is in a nuclear explosion, so to speak, outside of our uh, physicality and eternity and even through our reality. And he's a faithful witness to that. But he's also an accurate representation of God. He's the accurate word of God. The things that Jesus speak are the exact things that God the Father would speak, are the exact things that the Holy Spirit would speak. That way, if the Holy Spirit is speaking to you, he's not going to contradict anything in Scripture. In fact, he's going to remind you of Scripture. And no one and nothing else communicates who God is better than the living word. We see that Jesus is the firstborn from the dead as well. We see that Jesus was the first one to receive resurrection and eternal life. He wasn't the first one to be resurrected. We see other cases of resurrection. The little girl, uh, there's a little boy in the Old Testament. There's Jesus' best friend, Lazarus. But they all died again. Jesus is the first one to be resurrected unto eternal life. That when he died and came back to life, he received the resurrection that you and I can receive in him and will receive if we indeed believe in him and trust in him. Uh, we're not going to get into the details about compartments of hell before the resurrection, but the dead will rise on the last day to final judgment. Those who have died will rise up again. Somehow they skip over time and they come back to life to receive judgment, either for good or for bad. We see, uh, and we'll get into it probably another time, about Thessalonians, about those who believe will be caught up in the air, that the, the dead will rise first, that those who have died in Jesus will rise and will meet them in the air with the Lord. And a friend and I had a good conversation about that a couple weeks ago. But we read in 1 Corinthians 15, 45 through 49, and so it is written, 
The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. That would be Jesus. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, and afterward the spiritual. The first man was of the earth, made out of the dust. Remember in Genesis that God formed Adam out of the dust of the earth and breathed into his nostrils and gave him life. It says the second man is the Lord from heaven. We need that second man. We need to put on the new heaven man, the heavenly man, as the scripture says. As the man of dust, so also are those who are made of dust. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are heavenly. He's saying those who are just of the flesh, just of the dirt, are just like Adam. But those who are of the heavenly man or a spiritual man do the things that Jesus do. Or it's evident that this person is more like Jesus and more like some person of the world. And it says, verse 49, As we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. That if we're born again, we're going to start to look like a heavenly person. We're going to start looking weird to other people. Our decisions are going to be weird to the world because they're heavenly decisions. They're decisions of the new man, the heavenly man, not the first man. Because the first man's inheritance was what? Death. Destruction. And the day you eat of it, you will surely what? Die. But Jesus, he gives us eternal life. That when we come to Jesus, we don't eat the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, but we, we eat of the, tr- uh, of the tree of life. That he gives us a new fruit to munch on, and our lives are going to change and be transformed by that fruit. We talk about uh, Jesus being the beginning and the end. He was there in the garden. He's there at the end. That this story is carried all the way through. The story that begins in the garden, as we'll see, ends in, in heaven, a new creation. But Jesus became that first man, a part of the lineage of the first man. So we see throughout uh, Matthew, we see his lineage to take on the sin of mankind, like we just talked about. And that Jesus was the first to rise to eternal life, that we might have someone to follow. We can't go anywhere if we have no one to follow. And he's the one that we can follow. He's risen to life that we might in turn be raised to life with him. Because if Jesus wasn't alive, what hope would we have? As Paul says, we'd be the most pitiable people of all if there was no hope in the resurrection. The resurrection is the crux of all of this. If you don't believe in the resurrection, what's the point? And again, we need to be born again as spiritual. Because if we're not born again, we can't inherit the kingdom of God. We can't see the kingdom of God. And these are amazing things. As I was reading them, it really kind of, you know, struck me. slapped me across the face and kind of woke me up a little bit. Because I think we say these things a lot. And we even believe them as believers. That's why you're called a believer, because you believe these things, right? But do we honestly and really get the picture of what's going on here and what's going to happen? Do we truly sit there and think about that for a minute? Like the Psalms would say, Selah. You and I and Jesus Christ will be resurrected under reward, under heaven. You and I, apart from Jesus, will be resurrected to eternal death. Because all we ate was that fruit that meant death. We're going to live on like Jesus. There is eternity forever. This life is a moment. It's going to be so short in the sense we don't even remember it. It says that Jesus is ruler over the kings of the earth. Whether they like it or not, the president, the premier, the king, the emperor, the queen, 
the CEO. I mean, Jeff Bezos is kind of like a king of the earth. But Jesus is king of kings and lord of lords. And guess what? Everyone is going to bow, even if they don't know that now. And just like the people who would say, that's not my president, it doesn't change the fact that that guy is still in office. And that guy is your president, just because you don't like him. I'm not trying to say one way or the other who to vote for or anything like that. But whoever is in charge is your president, whether you voted for him or not. And that's the same thing with Jesus. Whether you want him to be God or not, guess what? He's God. He's in charge. And he has the final say. And that's what he's showing us here. We see that John gives glory to Jesus because of these things, but because he washed us for our sins in his own blood. That part of the glory of Jesus is that, unlike some earthly boss who might send an intern to do it, or send someone, you know, like a president sending a grunt, an 18-year-old grunt in the Marines to go carry out his will, right? Jesus gets up off his throne and does it himself. And more than does it himself, he bleeds all of his own blood for us. And that is not an ordinary king, an only earthly king who would do that. And someone in Amazon gets sick. I don't think Jeff Bezos comes down and drives into the hospital. But it says that we are kings and priests. And we might pass over that. There's a lot to unpack there that we are going to pass over. But let's think about it for a second. Jesus is saying, and John is saying, that you and I, as believers, are kings and priests in the kingdom of God and of heaven. And that Jesus set us apart himself to give glory to the Father, that he made us unto the Father, these people, right? Saul couldn't be king and priest. Saul was made king, and he tried to do a priestly duty, and he got rebuked for it, and it's part of his downfall. David was a king, one of the greatest kings of Israel, but he couldn't build the temple because of the blood on his hands. He couldn't have this priestly job. His son could, in a sense, but his son still wasn't priest. And yet the king dedicated the temple, did he not? The wisest king ever was able to pray for the dedication. But if we then, as believers, are kings and priests, we have crowns, right? We cast our crowns in heaven. We're given uh, priestly robes. Our job on earth is, in a sense, to be priests, to, to, draw, to point people to God, to not be their high priest, but to, to point them to the great high priest, Jesus. If we go back and read different scriptures, like Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Psalms, other places where it talks about things that kings should and shouldn't do, priests should and shouldn't do, and we realize that we're both, we might start living our life differently. We might take heed. We might keep it, like Revelation says. Whoa, we're kings and priests. Maybe I shouldn't drink because it says it's not for kings to drink strong drink and pervert judgment. I'm not a king. Well, then what does this say? Well, I'm not a priest. I'm not a pastor. Okay, you're not a pastor. Good for you. That's a, that's a reward in a sense because there's a double judgment for pastors. But it says here you're a priest. What are you doing messing around with that? Shouldn't be. I shouldn't be. More than that, you might begin to see your calling is more serious than you thought and more real than you thought and more attainable than you thought. Because it's God who does it. It's God who calls and who wills for you to do it. But this is us in heaven too. 
don't want to get too practical there. It's also us in heaven that we rule and reign with him. Like I said, casting our crowns before him. And that's part of our job in heaven. We're not going to be sitting there on a cloud with a harp playing away, but we're going to worship God. And we'll see that it's deeper uh, even than just singing. It's going to be like church, but it's also going to be like living a perfect life, a life without sin. It says that Jesus is what? He's coming on the clouds. Do you remember any reason why you think they might say that? Well, in Acts 1, 9 through 11, it says, Now when Jesus had spoken these things, while the disciples watched, the apostles watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And if, uh, back in our Acts study, we looked at this. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven, they're standing up there. Whoa. <laughs> you know, looking up there. If they had their cell phones, they would have been out there cell phone and live streaming. It says, two men stood by them in white apparel. So two angels came up to them and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? The same Jesus, it's not going to be a different guy. It's the same exact guy who you saw go up into heaven. It's going to come in like manner, in the same way that you saw him go into heaven. Saying that when he comes back, you're going to see him, and he's going to be coming on the clouds. And that's what John says here. And it says that every eye will see him. When Jesus comes back, nobody is going to miss it. I remember uh, back in New York, we had a little bit of an earthquake and Ashley was at her desk at her job at the time and I was driving in the car and she felt the earthquake because she was at her desk at her job and I was driving in the car and I feel it. I missed it. It's not going to be like that when Jesus comes back. It's not going to even need to be televised. Don't worry about technology. It's not going to require a TV to see it. You and I are going to see it. Well, what if it's on the other side of the planet? What if he comes back to Jerusalem? How are you and I going to see it? The earth is round. Do you believe there's flat? No. But like Doc said to Marty in Back to the Future, you're just not thinking fourth dimensionally, Marty. And Doc was usually wrong. He said the Indians wouldn't even be there, and they were there on the other side of the, the billboard when he went back in time. But seriously, when Jesus comes back, dimensions are being ripped apart. The fabric of our very reality is being rolled back like a scroll, the Bible says. You're going to see him. You don't need to physically see around the coverage of the earth. You're going to see him because... The heavenly dimension is breaking through into the dimensions that we're in, the four dimensions that we're in. And so, you know what? I'm not so worried about it. Why? Because I ain't going to be on the earth. I'm going to be on a horse behind him, riding with him. And I'm saying, there's my Jesus. And we're going to be going into battle, and I ain't going to miss that. I can't wait. I'm getting stoked right now. It says, even they who pierced him, referring to Israel, the Jewish people, you know, obviously the Romans are the one who crucified Jesus. Uh, but John and many of the early believers were what? They were Jewish converts. They were Jews, devout Jews who came to faith in their Messiah. And so Jesus is, in a sense, saying here that he isn't done with the Jewish people. That there's a plan for all of them to come to him, as we'll see in Revelation. And we're not to treat them like villains. There's some twisted people out there who treat, who claim to be Christians and treat Jews bad and hate Jews and are anti-Semites. Because they're the ones who killed Jesus. Well, truthfully, you and I all killed Jesus. It's our sin that put him on the cross. They, they yelled at him and the, the, they yelled for him to crucify him. And who are the ones that actually nailed him there? The Romans. But he's speaking about the Jewish people, the people who saw the Messiah and wanted him dead anyway. And man, is that not like the world today? They see the Savior and they want it dead anyway. Get it out of the school. Get it out of our kids' minds. In fact, teach them everything opposite what the Bible would teach. It says every tribe of the earth will mourn because of him. Every person, every Native American, every West Indian, every Russian, every European, every American. 
who doesn't know him, when they see him coming back, they're going to mourn. Big time. We'll see some of that later on. Because the torment of judgment begins here when they see him. They didn't believe that all the things happening on the earth was judgment for their sin. In fact, it just made them rail harder against God. And they took the mark of the beast and they hate him as we'll see. But when they see him come back, there ain't no more deception. They're no longer willfully blind to the truth of God. Oh no. It's real. He's God. He's back. I was against him. I lost. I thought we were winning and we lost. We had this huge army and we lost. So hell and torment begin. And John says, even so, amen. That even though this spells out the end of life for some and the beginning of the eternal death for them, even so, let God come and let his will be done. And that should be our attitude. We shouldn't be excited for the judgment to come. In some sense, yeah, I'd be excited, but the Bible talks about it's not wise, it's foolish to want the judgment to come. But even so, let God come and let his will be done in the somber. And man, yeah, it's coming. Because you know what? He certainly gave them enough time and opportunity. Again, because Revelation has been available to read for thousands of years, telling what will happen. The Bible before that, the promise of the Jews. We see other priests in the Old Testament that God is sending out the gospel to the whole world. That no one is going to be surprised. No one's standing up here, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I was never given a chance to believe this. I was never given a chance to believe you. How dare you come back and judge me? No, it says that they all are going to mourn because they all knew better at one time or another in their life. There's no complaint department here other than in and of themselves. Why did I do that? How could I not have believed that? Why did I disbelieve that? Why did I do this? We see one of the most famous names, the Alpha and the Omega. Really, just the A to Z of the Greek alphabet. It's just A, B, C, D, E, F, G, Alpha and Omega, C. But it's interesting that Jesus, in a sense, is using Gentile terms here, even through John. That in Greek, they're saying Alpha and Omega. He's not saying the Aleph and the whatever the last letter of the, the Jewish uh, Hebrew alphabet is. But I like how the word the is in italics in this translation, King James. And that usually just means it's not really there. It's just kind of implied that in the language, it's just beginning and end. Beginning and end. Jesus is beginning and he's end. He's embodiment of it. And the marketing for the iPhone, uh, they put out a statement a couple years ago. You're not to call it the iPhone. Go get the new iPhone. You're just to get new iPhone. Like this total self aggrandizement of embodiment of the term iPhone, that this iPhone, that's what this is here. Jesus is beginning and end. He is it. There's no, there's no one else. There's not another one. He is it. And John himself says in John 1, 1 through 5, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was, he was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him, nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. That he was and is and is to come. All these are active terms. He's not passive. He's active in the past. He's active in the present. And he's most assuredly active in the future. He's not bound by time. He's infinite, and he's definite. He is the singularity. 
but that he's the Almighty. Almighty. There's no one like him. There's no one who can stop him. And we'll see that, but we try. No one can stop him. He's God. He made everything. How, how on earth are you going to stop him? Nuclear weapon? Lasers? Every army? A couple horses? You're going to stop God? You need a break. It's the reason why the like, psalm says he laughs at the kings of the earth when they plot against him. He goes, what, are you kidding me? Don't be ridiculous. Even though evil seems like it's winning, remember, he, it's only having its day. Evil is not the beginning of the end. God is the beginning of the end. And evil's days are numbered. And we're already 37 minutes in. Let's go and try and finish this out here. Verse 9, it says, I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. And I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. And I heard uh, behind me a loud uh, voices of a trumpet saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Uh, interesting to see now that you know the Lord knows these churches by name and he's thinking about them specifically and he thinks about you and I specifically. Verse 12 says, Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment, down to the feet, and girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice is the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. And his countenance was like the sun, shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and death. Write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. I love this. This is like one of my favorite pieces of scripture of all time. And John says, brother and companion in tribulation. That it's not the tribulation, but that on the earth without trials. And I would say, based John here, uh, being arrested for the good news, that's tribulation. Dealing with persecution in the church, the tribulation. Well, like he says, brother and companion. He's the apostle. He's a command. I, Apostle John, remember the one that Jesus loved. He said, I'm your brother. I'm your companion. We're in this together. I'm no better than you. He doesn't claim his superiority. And he's showing that the men and women of the Bible, even though he's given such a great revelation of God, are just like you and I. They're witnesses of the things they saw God do in their lives. And God will give you or I something to say, even remotely close to this. Do it with humility. Because it's not of you, it's of God. It's a revelation of Jesus. Not the revelation of John. It's a revelation of Jesus Christ through John. And John knew that. But he was on the island of Patmos. This is an island between Asia Minor and Greece and the Aegean Sea. If you remember your, your history, your geography, your, I remember from Latin and everything. 
But you had Greece over here and a little strip of sea. And then you had Turkey over here. We're going to the Middle East and Africa and everything down here and Rome up here. You guys can't see, but my hands are moving in the shape of a map. Um, but the Aegean Sea is that little strip of water between there. Uh, and that island is still called Patmos even to this day. Uh, but John wrote this in about AD 96. I didn't do the math, but he's an old guy at this point. He's very old at this point. Uh, but this island was a prison island. It's kind of like Australia was for England. They sent all the bad people there. Uh, and in fact, church history or legend, depending on how you look at it, speaks of John being boiled alive in a vat of oil, and he didn't die. They wanted him dead, but he didn't die. And so they put him on this uh, island of exile, this prison island. And it reminds me of a, a line from a movie, I think it was Batman, and they go, uh, all the criminals kind of take you over, and they want, do you want death or exile? And the people pick exile, and he says, that's it, death by exile. And they put him out on a sheet of ice, and you know, you're not really going to live out there. But that's kind of what this was. Death or exile, John? Well, they try and give him death, so let's give him exile, and eventually he'll die out there in exile. Uh, but while he's in there for prison for sharing the gospel, God gives him this amazing revelation of Jesus. And he says he's in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. That's Sunday. The Lord's Day. The day of resurrection. He doesn't say the Sabbath, people. He says the Lord's Day. I think he would have said Sabbath if you meant Jewish Sabbath. And there's anything wrong with the Sabbath. You know, Paul says every day one man treats another greater than the other, and the other one treats all days alike. But he says he's spending time with God. And do you and I get along with God? Does God have a day in your life? Is that day the day of resurrection, or is it a day of works? And would we say we just went to church? Or that, man, I was in the Spirit today, and God spoke to me. There's a difference there. Well, what does it mean to be in the Spirit? Well, go home in your room, close your eyes, and just start praying. Just start reading the Bible in quietness with nothing around, not on your phone, in the actual Bible. And you'll see what it's like to be in the Spirit. Worship. And start forgetting about who's around you. Just focusing on God and singing the words to him. Quickly, you'll see that you're in the Spirit. And if not, ask God to fill you and, and bring you and put you in the Spirit. And that's where John was. I think a lot of us miss out on that because they haven't spent that time in the Spirit. We lived a life where we don't realize that we're kings and priests because we haven't yet lived in the Spirit. So John's praying. Maybe he's worshiping. Maybe he's thinking about the Scriptures. Maybe he's looking off at the ocean there. Scarred up, old man, hungry. Maybe his eyes are closed, I don't know. But then listen to this. A loud voice like a trumpet behind him. And I'm not thinking jazz. I used to love to go to jazz club in the city in college, in New York City in college. And this is probably more like a shofar or a ram's horn. Like the announcement of a king or very loud, very guttural, very powerful. It kind of gives you chills when you hear it loud voice like a trumpet behind him. I, 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 I probably would have lost control of my bodily functions. I was sitting there praying, and all of a sudden a loud voice like a trumpet blurs out behind me, especially if it's a dark at night. But this, this voice has a deep power and a deep authority to it. And Jesus, in this voice, identifies himself as the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And he gives John these instructions to write down what is about to write in the next two chapters to those seven churches. I mean, talk about answer to prayer and hearing from the voice of God, right? Oh, I heard the, from the Lord this morning, brother. Yeah, I'm sure you did, but it wasn't like John did. He writes these churches to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And we'll get into more of those as we get into them. 
But John, understandably, I think in a way, I don't know if I would turn around. I might be a little too afraid to turn around. But John's sitting there praying in the spirit. Here's this voice. I don't know if you turn around quickly. I don't know if he kind of like peered over his shoulder. I don't know how it was the way he turned around. But he turns to see who this voice is. And can you imagine what, you're, what he, you'd be thinking or feeling in this time? Like I said, I'd be terrified. I'd be in awe. I remember hearing the fire sirens sometimes going off uh, earlier as a believer. And going, oh, getting a, a startle. Is that the rapture? Like getting this hopeful fear and excitement in my heart. And nope, it was just 12 o'clock. But he turns around. As he turns around, he's in the spirit still. And what does he see? He doesn't see the island of Patmos behind him. He sees the heavenly realm. And in the heavenly dimension, he sees seven golden lampstands. Kind of like this cheap $10 light from Walmart over here. A lampstand, right? It's a upright, stands on the ground, goes all the way up, has light at the top. I'm sure it's a lot nicer than that. And there's seven of them. And this is where people start getting tripped up. Well, what are the lampstands? What? Did you just read the last verse? We'll get there. But Jesus tells you what they are. Just when you read it, just relax and keep reading. And eventually stuff will be explained. And if not, well, just more study needs to be done. But we see that. And where else do we see a lampstand in Scripture? Well, we see it in the tabernacle. And we don't see seven lampstands in the tabernacle. We see one lampstand with seven flames. And we see now that how it's been separated out and spread out now that uh, the tabernacle of God is with men, right? And who is walking in the middle of them? Our great high priest, Jesus. I'm not sure what orientation they are. Is it a long row and he's kind of weaving through them? Or I kind of picture it's more of like around, not like a circle, but they're in kind of a, a, a circle thing. And Jesus is kind of walking through them and around them and looking at them and tending to them seeing how their flame is, has the flame gone out? Because why? That was the priest's job in the tabernacle in the temple to go in there and make sure that the lamp was burned, the wicks were trimmed. That's what he's doing here. But he doesn't look like some Jewish high priest from several thousand years ago. He's human in appearance, yes, one like the Son of Man. He looks like Jesus looked after the resurrection, so John recognizes him. One like the Son of Man, but there's something a little more we see here. We see that he's got a garment down to his feet. He's got a golden sash. He's got this priestly outfit on, but he's got this golden sash. And gold speaks of deity. And it's this golden sash. Just think of this most beautiful royal outfit. Remember, priests wore those linen robes and they had the ephod right on their chest. This is, that was sort of a picture of this. And again, all these earthly ordinances, like Paul would say, were pictures of the heavenly realm. And that's what this is. This is the actual realm. It says that his head and hair were super white. And this could speak of old age, timelessness, wisdom, that, you know, like Father Time, you know, this, uh, he's not Father Time, but Father Time is just a sort of a, twinkle of this he's old he's wise he's also pure white as snow right everything's white and pure and clean but his eyes are like fire so picture this man looking being walking through these lampstands with a white robe all the way down to his feet a golden sash white hair white beard but his eyes are like fire 
I don't know if there's little flames looking out of them, but it's fire. It's intense. It's glowing. It's hot. And fire speaks of judgment. But in his eyes, as he's walking through the seven churches, his eyes are of judgment. What is going on here? And that's where we're going to see words here. He doesn't want them to go through the judgment. And so he's going to speak to them words that they might get corrected. But picture this. Why isn't this a movie? Wouldn't this not be sick? <laughs> That'd be awesome. Terrifying. Can you imagine seeing this? You're praying, you're hanging out, reading your Bible. Two seconds later, this is what you're seeing. It says John gets just enough to look him up and down. I'm sure it was a split second, but in that split second, he'd taken so much. He sees his feet were like fine brass, refined in a furnace. Kind of reminds you of Nebuchadnezzar's dream, that, that big statue. And this, you know, it's always a, an idol of a, a false take on what really exists. And this is what really exists. And Jesus says these feet that are like refined in a furnace. We know brass speaks of judgment of sacrifice, that these implements are made out of brass uh, in the temple. But it's also the strongest metal known to the ancient. Position that his feet are made out of it, right? That his feet, the one that crushed the serpent, are made out of brass. And the strongest thing, not going to be stopped. And blessed are the feet of those who spread the gospel, right? And put on the, the, the boots of the preparation of the gospel of peace. It says his voice here is like the sound of many waters. Have you ever heard a waterfall? I never got a chance to go to Niagara. I never went to Niagara. I guess I never had a chance because I could have gone anytime I wanted. It was like only six hours. Uh, but you can hear the feel and sound of a waterfall. We have a creek behind our house now, and you can hear it. And when it's loud, it struck me the other day. It's probably why I never hear any of the road noise. because that the sound of the stream is just enough to, to drown it all out. But you can hear moving water. Even from far away, you're hiking in the woods, you start to hear it. It could still be far away and you'll hear it. Um, I forget how far that there's some, maybe it's the largest waterfall. You should go look it up, I might later, but you could hear it from a ridiculously far amount away because it's so loud. But the sound of rushing water or waves, it drowns out all other sound and draws you to it. Maybe John could have heard the waves on the island of Patmos, but they were nothing like the, the, the power and intensity of this voice. It was powerful. It was washing. You know, part of it is like water. We need water. It's good for life. We need it for life. And it washes us, right? The water of the word, his sound of his voice is like rushing water. Just picture this figure. It's crazy. It's amazing. It's real. We're seeing into heaven, guys. And in this person's, this being... This powerful being who's glowing, eyes on fire, and his right hand, seven stars. I mean, the pic kid's drawing a picture of the little five-pointed stars, right? Picture the sun exploding, burning, uh, fusion, or a fusion bomb going off, all these uh, solar flares and things going off. And there's seven of those in his right hand. You know, the right hand was a symbol of power. And these things, just picture them kind of floating in his hand. Right? Psalm 104, 1 through 9. I won't read it all for time. But it says, uh, Who cover yourself with light as a garment. Who stretch out the heavens like a curtain. You can read the rest. It's really good. But God just stretches out the heavens like your eye might open a curtain. That's the way he stretched out the universe. And it's Isaiah 40, 12. He says, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand 
measure the heaven with a span, you know, the thumb to the pinky, that God can measure the entire universe with his two fingers. And he's got seven stars here in his hand. It says, out of his mouth, if you weren't scared yet, a sharp two-edged sword. He opens his mouth, holding the stars in the midst of the lampstand, flowing white hair, bright countenance, white robes, fire in his eyes, out of his mouth, a two-edged sword, sharp and gleaning and powerful. And Hebrews 4, 12-13 says, For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division and soul of the spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. And this is the person we must give an account to. He came in meekness, and we, we esteemed him stricken, the Bible says. I don't think we esteem this guy stricken. I think we esteem ourselves stricken. It says his countenance was like the sun in its strength. Ever been outside? And it's like really hot. It's noon. It's the summer, and how hot and bright the sun is. You can't even look at the sun because it burns your retinas. That's how bright he was. And we'll see, we'll read later, much later, that uh, the new heavens and the new earth, in fact, don't even need a sun. That Jesus is the light. And in fact, the sun itself is a picture of God in creation. And this whole thing here, this whole revelation, this is a revelation of Jesus Christ. This is him revealing himself to John and to the world. This is what he really looks like. He's not just some straggly carpenter's son, which was glory in itself. But in the spiritual realm, this is what he looked like. Matthew 17, 1 through 3, it says, Now after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. That he begins to reveal how bright and how glorious he is. And I love how Moses and Elijah just kind of show up. Like, hey, Jesus, how's it going? You know, they know him. They're in love with him. They don't have any reason to be afraid in this divine being. And so Jesus gives the disciples a little taste of what he's truly like, and we're going to close out here in a minute. Um, but there's no mistaking him for God then. You see this creature, this being, you're not going to go, is that God? Is that an angel? You're going to know. And if you're like the people of the earth, you're going to mourn. Remember, Moses would have to even cover his face with a veil when he came down from the mountain because he spent time with God, and Moses himself would be glowing for that time. And I can imagine here being irradiated by this presence. But I think what John says next makes the most sense in all of Revelation to me as a person. It says, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. You're praying, you're hanging out, you turn around. Like I said, it's probably just a glimpse, and you know, it was so amazing. You know, it's just stuck in his brain. He needed to sit there and study and take notes. You saw it, you just knew what it was, right? And he fell down dead. Not moving, probably not breathing. Like, you get a vision. What man can stand in the presence of God? No one can. They all have to hide themselves in the cleft of the rock. And he sees Jesus as he is. A picture of the Father. No wonder he falls down dead. No, I don't think any of the other guys, even Elijah got this close to seeing God that person. They all saw things similar, but not quite there. And what does Jesus do? He gets down, 
With his right hand, he was holding the stars. He puts the stars down. Makes them float there. I don't know what's going on. But he touches John. John's feeling dead right now. And if I'm not dead, I'm going to die because there's no way I can handle this vision. There's no way I can approach this being who's all powerful and all holy and almighty. I am dead. Not even afraid. I am dead. Jesus says, don't be afraid. He touches him with that hand of power and of authority. He says, don't be afraid. I'm alive forevermore. Don't worry. John, I'm God. I'm alive. You don't have any reason to be afraid of me. I've washed you. And so John sees, and he sees that he has the keys of Hades and death. But the devil is not in charge of hell. It's not, he's not running a party down there. But Jesus himself has the keys to this physical and spiritual place and of death itself. He's the only one who can unlock death and turn on eternal life for you and I. And it's interesting, too, we talk about Hades because Hades had its own connotation in Greek and Roman religion. We're not going to get into it. It's a deeper study, but there was Abraham's bosom, which had two compartments before Jesus died on the cross. And those people went there. Some were tormented. Some were comforted. Jesus died, preached liberty to the captives. People were freed. And then there's this other section of eternal hell, this eternal compartment, eternal lake of fire. Um, and that's what these keys are for. Again, that's a deeper study for another time. I don't want we got enough to cover now before to get into that stuff. But Jesus repeats the instructions here. And he probably knew that, like the men in black, John's mind was wiped by this vision. And he says, write down the things which you have seen, which are and which will take place. Perhaps even to write the, the Gospel of John. But sincerely to write the vision of what he saw here with Jesus, that he's allowed to talk about this. Remember we read about Paul not being allowed to. Uh, the things that God is about to show him, which are currently... These letters that he's going to write to the churches in the next two chapters are really letters to churches. And then the future events which, he's, which, which John is going to have an insight to. He's going to get a front row seat from eternity into the future of things that are, are happening and have happened. Future to him, mostly past to us, some future to us. But Jesus explains the mystery right here. He says that the seven stars are the seven angels of the churches. It's not a capital A angel like we see Christophany before. But the word simply means messenger. And yes, in the heavenly sense, angels are messengers of God. They delivered messages for him. They spoke of when Jesus was born. They gave messages to Mary and other guys as well. Um, I don't think it to mean that there's an angel in charge of each church, that somehow there's some angel in charge of the church itself. I think in, if that was the case, we'd end up getting a cult. Uh, you know, some cults getting visions of an angel named Moroni. Again, I don't know why you're taking instruction from someone named Moron, but sincerely, don't get your whole religion based on what an angel tells you. But with that, I'm sure that there are angels watching over the churches. We see a lot of spiritual battles in Daniel. I'm sure that they are, in a sense, uh, like a guardian angel over... It, but I also believe that the word messenger, I think it could just mean, especially because we're writing, Jesus' writing, prophecy always has those kind of three fulfillments, a direct, a future, and an eternal. And, or, uh, and this one is really direct. He's literally writing to these seven churches at this time, but it's also seven church ages, and I believe also seven types of churches even in any age. But he's speaking to those pastors, those leadership there, I believe. You know, the pastor has a great authority over the church to lead them in the right way, 
like Jesus to walk around and make sure that everyone's candles are lit. And it's speaking to the leadership there. And I think it's dangerous with a lot of things to pick one camp. Oh, it's a guardian angel, and that's it. Oh, it's the pastor, and that's it. I think it's both. I think it senses both. You know, spiritual sights, like we're going to see a lot of here in Revelation, and this is probably one of the most amazing here, can be weird, interesting, scary, hard to understand. Uh, you know, they, they, they look funny to us, like the beasts we're going to see before the throne. But they always have a direct tie-in with physical places, people, events, and times. But the physical manifestation of the spiritual realm doesn't necessarily always look like the spiritual realm. There's no glowing star above the church, you know. The church itself is in a lampstand, but you said, what? Let your light shine before men. It can't be hidden. Not put it in a bushel. That there's a spiritual picture of a physical thing going on. It's sort of the behind the scenes. Pull the curtain back and you go, oh, that's why. Because the spiritual thing is happening. Because the spiritual has so, there's so much more dimension is what I'm trying to say the spiritual than our limited dimension and understanding of the physical. Remember, Elisha and his servant opened his eyes, Lord, they might see. And when he opened Elisha's servant's eyes, he saw all these chariots of fire. They thought they were surrounded, but no, the enemies were surrounded. We see Jesus explain that the seven lampstands are the seven churches. These specific churches uh, that we'll look at uh, in the next couple of chapters, probably even specific congregations, uh, even throughout history, but as we see that, and we kind of have this abrupt stop here before the letters, uh, what a vision. That John is to write these things down that he's seeing, that we may read them, we may hear them and understand them, and that we keep them. And we keep what the Alpha and the Omega has revealed about himself. We all want to know what God looks like. We all want to know what he has to say. Why would we shy away from this book, which is so clearly a revelation and direct word of God in the word of God? The next couple chapters, if you have red letters, you'll see red letters scattered throughout. Because God reveals things about himself, about the church, about judgment to come and heaven afterward. And most of all, Jesus wants to know, are you ready? I pray that you're ready today. God, if anyone listening is not ready, but they just pray this simple prayer, Lord Jesus, I don't totally understand everything about the Bible, but I know that you died for me. I know that you bled on that cross and that you've been coming after me and you love me. Please forgive my sin. Help me turn to you and trust you all my days. Uh, Even if it's just to escape the judgment, but God, I know that there's more than that. You have more than judgment for me. In fact, you don't want judgment for me. So please forgive me and make me new into the heavenly person. In Jesus' name. And if you prayed that prayer, you can be free of judgment. And Lord, for the rest of us who have prayed that prayer, maybe many times over, God, would you help us to keep these words, to hear them, to understand them, to read them, and to share them. And Lord, help us to live in light of who you truly are, the God of all the earth, the God of all creation, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Come soon, Lord Jesus, even so. Come soon. In your name we pray. Amen. And may this God, may his face shine upon you, may he keep you. And I said it backwards, but it doesn't matter. God loves you. Be blessed today. Amen. There is a vineyard of the Lord. There is a vineyard for our soul. With all our troubles left behind.
we drink first light until 